Welcome to episode 147 of the Fredcast Cycling Podcast for March 14th, 2010. My name is David, and I'm a Fred. In this week's episode of the Fredcast, California seeks to ban cell phone use while cycling. The Idaho stop law fails in Utah and is Sydney hazardous to cycling. Plus, Colorado's governor's injured while cycling. Lots of pro cycling news. United Airlines is getting hammered on Facebook for their bike fees. And Google Maps adds cycling directions. And we've got an interview with one of the engineers. So sit back, relax, and if you're riding your bike, hammer just a little bit harder because here comes the Fredcast. Hey, fellow Freds, welcome back to another episode of the Fredcast. Great to be back here with you. Thanks for being patient while I went on vacation with my family. We had a great time, but now we're back and ready to get back to another episode of the Fredcast. But before we do, I want to remind you that this episode of the Fredcast is brought to you by Jensen USA. Go to jensenusa.com slash the Fredcast or simply click the jensenusa.com link on thefredcast.com. If you haven't tried Jensen USA, you're going to love it. In a word, they are simply the best mail order company for the cycling industry with lots of mountain bike and road bike components and complete bikes. And hey, you're going to be shopping to get ready for spring and summer anyway. What better way to get started than by supporting Jensen USA? Dot com, who has been supporting the Fredcast. You'll be glad you did because you'll find some great deals every single day on all the parts and components and bikes that you are interested in. Go and check out jensenusa.com slash the Fredcast. We thank them so much for their support, and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. Now, let's get to the news for this week's episode of the Fredcast. Well, as you may know, the League of American Bicyclists held their National Bike Summit last week in Washington, D.C. You'll recall that we went to that a couple of years ago and just learned a ton about bicycle advocacy and the great work that the League of American Bicyclists does every single day for those of us who ride here in the United States of America. Well, I would say that probably the single biggest story to come out of this year's League of American Bicyclists National Bike Summit was an announcement that was made on the first day of the summit by none other than Google. Google announced that they were bringing bicycling directions to their Google Maps application at maps.google.com. And for more information on that, you can go to maps.google.com slash biking. They brought cycling directions, point-to-point directions, just like you would use for your car or for walking or for public transport already in Google Maps, but they brought it right to Google Maps so that you could go from your home to your place of work or to uh, your friend's house or grandma's place or wherever you like, and Google Maps would give you the directions, and they brought it to 150 cities across the United States of America. Now, I've got an interview with one of the engineers of the new Google Maps bicycling directions in the features section today. But first, one of the second largest stories to come out after this was a lot of people complaining that um, the, some of the routes that Google Maps was coming up with were taking them either through uh, congested areas, 
uh, areas frequented by trucks uh, or taking them through perhaps some dangerous areas. I saw some comments online about people saying that it was taking them through some, some areas known for drug dealing or for gang activity. But remember, folks, this is a beta product. And one of the things that you'll hear in the interview coming up is that Google is looking for your feedback. So stay tuned to the feedback section of the show. I got to say, this is something that all of us in the cycling community have been asking for for a long, long time. And we know that Google supports cycling. As a matter of fact, one of the things that you'll hear in the interview is that about 10% of Googlers, as they call themselves, use bikes as transportation to get to work each day. So these are people who are very focused on this issue. So it's great to see that they've done it, and it's great to know that they're looking for our feedback as this continues through the beta period. It's a great thing. Go to maps.google.com slash biking, check it out, and get ready for the interview coming up in the features section of the show. Speaking of advocacy, a couple of laws in the news this week regarding cycling. First off is California State Senate Bill 1475, as proposed by State Senator Joe Simitian, and they are proposing amending the California Vehicle Code to extend the ban on handheld cell phone use to cyclists. We've talked here on the show about California's ban on handheld cell phone use for drivers of motor vehicles. And now they want to extend this to bikes. According to Senator Simidian, who was talking to sf.streetsblog.org, he said that this was an oversight, that cyclists were not included in the original law, telling them, quote, common sense tells us it's not a safe habit given all the risks that cyclists have to contend with. Now, I can hear a lot of you out there nodding, saying, yeah, that makes sense. I wouldn't want to hold my phone in my hand. Uh, while I had one other hand on the handlebars. But interestingly enough, the California State Bicycle Coalition is not at all happy with this law. They believe that distracted driving is a more important factor for legislators and law enforcement to tackle than distracted cycling. California Bicycle Coalition Communications Director Jim Brown said, quote, the consequences of a distracted driver are considerably more serious than the consequences of distracted cycling. Continuing, he said, quote, in the absence of any evidence against bicyclists, this law seems premature. Well, you know my opinions about handheld cell phone use I stated them pretty clearly here on this show and on the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast. I firmly believe that drivers should not be able to use handheld cell phones, but that hands-free devices uh, in the right circumstances should be allowed. Uh, I was sort of raked over the coals by my friend Carlton Reed uh, from quickrelease.tv and bikebiz.com on the Spokesman and by some of you commenting in emails and in uh, blog posts at the spokesman's website. On that spokesman show, I mentioned that I would not take a handheld phone call while I was riding my bike. It just doesn't make sense to me, again, to have one hand on the handlebar, another hand on a cell phone, and not be able to swivel my head back and forth while I was on my bike. And so I personally don't have a problem with this particular law. It's no different than distracted driving. Having said that, I'll go back to my previous comments that I believe that there are a, there's already laws on the books about distracted driving and that I think that it is time for law enforcement to start going after people who are eating, doing their makeup, 
shaving, reading, and doing all of those other things that cause drivers to be distracted and cause a danger to other motorists, pedestrians, and of course, cyclists. And yes, you may have heard about that Florida woman who crashed into the back of an SUV when she herself was shaving while driving on her way to Key West. You fill in the blanks about the shaving and Key West and where her attention was focused at the time. Look, folks, the bottom line is distracted driving is bad driving. Distracted cycling is bad cycling. And what is good for the driver is good for the cyclist. But as always, I welcome your comments. Meanwhile, here in the state of Utah, Utah lawmakers coming to the close of the annual legislative session failed to pass the law that would have given Utah cyclists the right to make so-called Idaho stops here in the state. The state Senate coming up one vote short of sending House Bill number 91 to the governor for his signature. And had it gone to the governor, it would have let cyclists in some cases run red lights and stop signs. Essentially, the measure, which was sponsored by Representative Carol Spackman Moss, would have let cyclists roll through stop signs after yielding to any traffic, and it would have allowed cyclists to glide through red lights after coming to a complete stop to make sure that no cars are coming. According to the Associated Press, those who voted against the bill said that it created unnecessary and complicated rules that would lead to accidents. Talking to cycling friends here in the state, however, many of them said that neither the bill's passage nor its defeat would change their behavior, especially in rural areas where rolling through stop signs after checking for traffic seems to be, well, it just seems to be common practice. However, running stop lights, red lights, in large cities like Salt Lake City, St. George, and other places here in the state, probably not a good idea at all or in any major metropolitan area. Laws like this are gaining traction, however, and we are seeing these come up more and more across the United States. I'll keep you posted and let you know where the next ones come up and whether or not they do indeed pass. And whether it's running red lights or stop signs or distracted drivers, an American academic who's known for comparing the safety of cyclists around the world recently spent a sabbatical year in Sydney, Australia, and his findings probably won't surprise those of you who live in Sydney. Dr. John Pusher, who is a Rutgers University professor and is known for his studies comparing European cycling to American cycling, said that he considered Sydney to be among one of the developed world's most hostile cities for cyclists. He said, quote, whether I was a pedestrian or cyclist when in Sydney, I found the level of the hostility of enough Sydney motorists worse than I had seen anywhere in the world. As a result of his experiences, he worked together with two Australian colleagues and will shortly have a paper published in the Journal of Transport Geography. That paper will show that Sydney falls way behind much of the developed world in cycling friendliness. Now, not only did Dr. Pusher and his colleagues compare Sydney to European and American cities, but they also compared it to Melbourne, also 
in Australia. According to the report, cyclists in Sydney receive unfair aggression. There are too many hostile motorists, and the situation deters women from cycling. In a nutshell, Melbourne is doing a much better job at making sure that the streets are friendly for cyclists than is Sydney. As a result, the researchers said that twice as many trips are being made by bike in Melbourne than in Sydney, and the rate of trips in Melbourne is growing at three times that of Sydney. According to Dr. Pusher, when he was spending his year off in Sydney, quote, I didn't cycle that often because I almost got killed several times. People cutting me off, squeezing me off the road, and not stopping. Frankly, to me, it sounds a lot like my old home of Los Angeles. And Americans should not necessarily feel any safer, especially if they are in the sunshine state of Florida. The reason for that, according to the USA Today, is that Florida is the deadliest state in the nation for pedestrians and cyclists. According to 2008 federal statistics, 17.4% of cyclist deaths and 11.1% of pedestrian deaths were in Florida. Anecdotally, a lot of people will tell you that that might be because Florida's population is a little bit older and perhaps, therefore, a a little less skilled at driving. However, experts say that a rapid population growth, a high tourism rate, and a pleasant climate that draws more people outside year-round than other states, those are the factors that contribute most to these high rates in Florida as compared to other states. Marianne Trussell, the chief safety officer for Florida's Department of Transportation, told USA Today that she doesn't necessarily fault just the drivers, saying, quote, somebody is doing something they shouldn't be doing. Drivers are making a right turn and not yielding to pedestrians or making a right turn on red. Pedestrians are not paying attention to traffic or they're crossing the street mid-block instead of going to the intersection. In other words, there's plenty of blame to go around. And just to wrap up our stories on government and cycling, Colorado's cycling governor, Bill Ritter, was injured on Monday, March 2nd, shortly after 6 a.m. in the morning when, while out riding with a group of friends, he clipped the wheel of the rider in front of him and went down and had multiple rib fractures on his right side. In addition to six fractured ribs, he also had a separated ligament in his right shoulder. He is back at home and back to work, and a lot of people are thankful for that. Now, if you're not familiar with Bill Ritter, perhaps you haven't been following Lance Armstrong's tweets because you may recall several months ago, Lance Armstrong was spending a lot of time in Colorado, specifically in Aspen, and was having meetings with the governor about the possibility of reviving stage racing in Colorado. A lot of us remember the Coors Classic, and a lot of rumors were swirling about whether or not Ritter and Armstrong might be able to figure out a way to put together a revival of a race similar to the Coors Classic. Also, last June, Governor Ritter rode in the 52-mile Elephant Rock Ride south of Denver, and that was specifically to promote a new cycling safety law in the state. So, Governor Ritter, we know you are on the mend, and we send our best wishes for a speedy and full recovery.
Well, let's briefly switch to professional cycling news, and specifically the big race to talk about right now just concluded today, and that is Perry Nice. Perry Nice was won by two-time Tour de France winner, and now winning his second Perry Nice title, Alberto Contador. And when you look at the final general classification standings, you can tell that the Spaniards dominated Perry Nice, at least in the general classification this year, with Alberto Contador finishing in 28 hours, 35 minutes, and 35 seconds. Second place and just 11 seconds back, his compatriot Alejandro Valverde from Castaparna. Third place, 25 seconds back of Contador, also from Spain, Luis Leon Sanchez from Castaparna. In fourth, Roman Kreuziger from Likigas was 26 seconds back and the winner of the best young rider's jersey. Fifth place from Spain, Samuel Sanchez, 30 seconds back. In sixth, my favorite from Team Saxobank or Saxobank, Jens Voigt was 35 seconds back of Alberto Contador and did wear the yellow jersey for at least one day in this year's Perry Nice. Way to go, Jens. In seventh place, yep, you guessed it, from Spain, Joaquim Rodriguez from Team Katusha, 37 seconds back. In eighth place from Team Kofidis, Rain Taamare from Estonia and Team Kofidis, one minute, seven seconds back. Ninth, Jean-Christophe Perraud from France and Omega Farmalato at 116. And in 10th place, rounding out the top 10 in the final general classification of this year's Paris-Nice, Jerome Coppel from France, one minute, 17 seconds back. Now, of course, the big story is that Alberto Contador won Perry Nice for a second time and that he is gunning for his third Tour de France victory later this year in July. But the phenom, the absolute marvel of this year's Perry Nice is a first-year professional cyclist from Slovakia, specifically Peter Sagan. Peter is 20 years old and he is in his first year as a professional riding for Team Likigas. He took fifth place in the prologue at Perinice, second in Stage 2. He won Stage 3, he won Stage 5, and he took third in Stage 6, just five seconds behind Stage winner Javier Tondo. At the end of Perinice, he ended 17th in the general classification, He took the green points jersey and was fourth in the white jersey of best young rider Roman Kreuziger. At one point during the race, Sagan was quoted as talking to reporters and saying, quote, now Slovakia lives with cycling. After my first win, three Slovakian TV crews went to my home and interviewed my father. Peter Sagan is one of those riders that you can just tell we're going to be watching over the next few years. You know, a couple of years ago, Andy Schleck was the guy that we were talking about as the phenom. It looks like he has a competitor in one Slovakian named Peter Sagan. Meanwhile, in Italy, we are smack dab in the middle of the 2010 Tirreno Adriatico. There are two stages left to go, and after today's stage five, Michel Scarponi from Italy is sitting in first place atop the general classification, sitting 
10 seconds back of him in second place is Stefano Garzelli, also of Italy. In third place, Maxime Iglinski. In fourth, world champion Cadell Evans is 18 seconds back of Scarponi. In fifth, Robert Guessing from Rabobank is 27 seconds back. In sixth, Michael Rogers from Team HTC Columbia is 29 seconds back. Also in the top 10, a name that we've come to know and see in a lot of general classification standings over the last couple of years, Vincenzo Nibali from Team Likigas is 31 seconds back in eighth place. We'll have more results on the next episode of the Fredcast and give you the final general classification and all the news from this year's Tirreno Adriatico. Rounding out the major events in March in the world of professional cycling, next weekend we'll see Milan San Remo on March the 20th. Then Volta Ciclista a Catalunya begins March 22nd and runs through the 28th. And then Ghent Wevelgem on March 28th. Looking forward to April, it's going to be time for the Hell of the North, Paris-Roubaix 2010, and the Amori Sports Organization, the folks who put on the Tour de France, who also put on Paris-Roubaix and Paris-Nice and several other cycling events during the year, announced this weekend the teams for this year's Paris-Roubaix, and they include AG2R, Bouygues Telecom, Castaparna, Cofidis, HTC Columbia, Uskaltel Euskadi, Francaise de Joux, Lamprey, Likigas, Milram, Omega Pharma, Quickstep, Rabobank, Saxobank, Aqua e Sapone, Androni Giacatoli, Team BMC, and that, of course, is the team of George Hincapi, who is hoping to win a Perry Roubaix before he retires. Also included Cervelo Test, Garmin Transitions, Katusha, Radio Shack, Soar, Soja Sun, Skills Shimano, Sky, and Vacan Soleil. Once again, this year's Paris-Roubaix will be on April 12th, 2010. Meanwhile, it's hard to talk about professional cycling these days without turning our attention to none other than seven-time Tour de France champion Lance Armstrong. Lance recently gave an interview to the Spanish daily El País, a newspaper there in Spain, where he was talking about his relationship with Alberto Contador, which seems to be something on everyone's mind whenever they get a microphone or a recorder in front of Lance, and also talking about his chances in this year's Tour de France. Specifically, talking about Contador, he seemed to try to shy away from any kind of a head-to-head controversy with Alberto saying, quote, about Contador, quote, he's highly strung, which isn't a bad thing. So am I. All the great champions are like this. They all have a bit of insecurity in their lives and feel they have to compensate. I don't think it was Alberto, more the people around him. Alberto isn't stupid. He's an intelligent person. He'll continue to improve and gain experience in everything. Continuing on and talking about his chances in the 2010 Tour de France, Lance said the following, It doesn't look to be in my favor. We'll go to the race and see who is best. It isn't essential that I win. I don't need to especially, other than to reward all the hard work. There's no difference between winning seven or eight. The next tour will be a great story. The rivalry with Contador, what happened last year, This is good for the tour. 
but it won't change my life whether I win or not. Well, here's my question. Is this really what Lance is thinking, or is this just a little bit of gamesmanship? Maybe make Alberto feel just a little bit more comfortable knowing that uh, maybe Lance isn't necessarily gunning for victory. I, for one, find it hard to believe. I think that Lance is all about victory, is all about winning, and is all about being number one. That's what made him the great Tour de France champion that he is. So perhaps this is just a little bit of gamesmanship, a little bit of toying with your your competition before the actual event. We'll find out, of course, in July. Personally, I find it hard to believe that Lance has built this entire Team Radio Shack around him and is not setting the goal to win the Tour de France. What do you think? Meanwhile, while his Team Radio Shack teammates like Levi Leipheimer were off in France racing in Paris-Nice, Lance found himself down in South Africa. Well, actually, he almost didn't find himself in South Africa because when he arrived at Customs and and Immigration, when he arrived down in South Africa and he presented his passport to the immigration officials, they almost didn't let him in the country. Why? Well, not because Lance had done anything wrong. The only thing that he'd done is traveled too much, and there simply was no room in his passport to put any more stamps, and specifically the stamp from South Africa. Well, after just a little bit of talking and a little bit of delay, Lance was eventually let into the country, and he was there to participate in one of the world's largest cycling events. That's the Cape Argus Pick and Pay Cycle Tour. Now, Part of this is recreational, and part of it is race. And Lance was there as part of Team Radio Shack, and he was trying to help set up his teammate, Daryl Impey, for the victory in this year's Cape Argus Pick and Pay. Unfortunately, it didn't work out exactly the way that Lance would have hoped, and as a result, Impey finished only third behind fellow South Africans Malcolm Lang and Christoph Van Heerden, Armstrong went home with a ninth place finish. According to Malcolm Lang, quote, Lance tried to go with a kilometer to go, but I don't think he realized how strong the wind blows down here in the Cape. I think their plan was to make me go early, but I waited, and with about 150 meters to go, I knew I had it, and indeed he did. Now, talk about a large cycling event. This event had over 35,000 participants. Kind of makes your local century ride just kind of feel like your local club ride, doesn't it? Hey, how many of you have tried to travel with a bike lately? Now, I remember when I used to travel almost every weekend to mountain bike races across the country when I was in marketing in the bike business. And I, of course, was traveling with one, two, or more bikes. And at the time, I seem to recall that I was paying about $40 each way when the agents would remember to charge it for taking my bike with me. Well, a gentleman by the name of Joe Lotus, who is a triathlete and a frequent business travel, started a new Facebook page or Facebook fan page called United Airlines is Ridiculous to Charge $175 Each Way to Travel with a Bike. The reason he did this was because he was recently traveling and 
realized that taking his bike along with him on United Airlines could cost him an extra $350 for a round trip on United, while other airlines like Southwest, JetBlue, and others were only charging $50 each way. Now, this group has only been up on Facebook for a short time, but as of right now, there's over 7,300 members of this group including me. I don't think it's any secret to you. If you've listened to the Fredcast for any period of time, you know I travel quite frequently on business and I always want to take a bike with me, but it just is too expensive. My particular airline of choice, simply because of where I'm located um, and the fact that I fly out of a Delta Airlines hub is Delta Airlines. So I went to the Delta Airlines website because I remembered when I went to the Alps a couple of years ago and I did take Delta, I remembered that at the time when you added up the Delta charges and then the Air France connecting charges, that there was the potential that I might have had to pay up to $600 or more round trip to take my bike with me to the Alps. Well, I went to the Delta Airlines website this evening and I found that for travel within the United States to or from Canada, the U.S. Virgin Islands, or Puerto Rico, I could pay $200 US each way to take my bike. For travel outside the United States, still $200. The bottom line here is that's usurious. Those charges are huge. Now, I'm not a golfer, but you know what? My bike packs up in a case that's very compact and is really not that much larger or that much heavier than a lot of the the golf bags that I've seen on planes. And I'm pretty sure that those go for free. And if not, they go for a lot less than $200 each way. So then I did a little bit more research. American Airlines, $100 in addition to the applicable checked baggage fees. Once again, Southwest. $50 each way. Continental Airlines says that they will charge a $100 service charge each way plus the $25 to $35 for the first or second bag. Meanwhile, U.S. Airways will charge $100 each direction. When you start looking at this, you start thinking, maybe United and Delta are charging just a little bit too much. Well, I'm about to start a test myself. The folks over at Dahan have sent me one of their folding bikes to do a review. And as part of the review, I'm going to be traveling with my new Dahan Speed Pro to see whether or not I'm getting charged for taking that bike. And also to give you a little bit of feedback on what it's like to travel with a folding bike and to give you the experience from the road. I've built the bike up. It's really sweet looking. I'll be giving you a review here in a couple of months. But in the meantime, if you're fed up with these charges, please, I'd urge you to go over to Facebook, and I have put a link in the show notes, and I'd urge you to join this group. Interestingly enough, by the way, United Airlines is a partner with the United States Cycling Federation, a corporate partner of the USCF. So if you have a USCF license, United Airlines is one of your corporate partners. And as such, you could get a 10% discount when you fly on United. Now, you may recall that there used to be a number of groups that would provide you with vouchers so that you could fly with your bike for free. I believe that most of those 
are gone. Meanwhile, for a story that I saw online, they contacted the United States Cycling Federation and spoke with Andrea Smith, a spokeswoman for USA Cycling. She said that she sympathizes with cyclists who have to pay the $175 fee. Quote, it's outrageous and we are completely sympathetic to that. United Airlines, for their part, were also quoted in the story. Their spokeswoman, Robin Urbanski, said that United would review the bike transporting fee, saying, quote, at the end of the day, that is what social media is for, to get feedback. So you want to give some feedback to United? Join the group, and hopefully they'll be lowering those fees to a more reasonable level. Following up on a story on a recent episode of the Fredcast, you'll recall the case of Nick Lowe, a New Zealand man fined for cycling nude who decided that instead of paying the fine, he would take the case to the high court. As a result, Wellington's high court has said that Mr. Lowe's cycling nude was not offensive and threw out his conviction. However, the court did warn fellow cyclists not to follow Mr. Lowe's lead. According to Justice Dennis Clifford of the High Court, there were varying levels of offensiveness when it comes to nudity. He said that riding nude on a quiet country road could be considered less offensive than, for instance, walking naked along a public footpath. However, Justice Clifford did warn that the judgment does not mean, quote, that nude cycling cannot constitute offensive behavior. Speaking of offensive activity and kind of circling back to the way the whole show started today, it seems that Paris Hilton was doing a bit of shopping on Melrose Avenue a few days ago. And as she drove away in her GMC Yukon hybrid, she decided to take a shortcut, a shortcut through a bike lane. And as a result, she was stopped by some of Los Angeles's finest. She was given a warning. She showed the officer her driver's license, and the officer let her go with just the warning. Just before getting pulled over, Paris was on her BlackBerry, twittering, saying, just got some new computers and electronic gadgets at the Melrose Mac store. I'm such a tech nerd. I can't help it. Technology rocks. Well, you know what rocks, Paris? Making sure that you're not in a position to hit a cyclist. And that story and many of the stories dovetail very nicely into our Audible pick of the week. It's a book called Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do and What It Says About Us by Tom Vanderbilt. And you can get this book and over 60,000 others by going to audiblepodcast.com slash cycling and signing up for the Audible Listener Gold Program. This book, we talked about it on the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable podcast on our last episode, specifically as we were talking about distracted driving. And I picked this book up. I listened to it on my vacation and it blew my mind. Whether you don't... ever drive a car, you will still get quite a bit out of this book because it explains a lot of what goes on out there on the road and why. And all of that will make you not only a safer cyclist, but also a safer driver as well. 
And if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash cycling right now and sign up for the Audible Listener Gold program, you can get traffic Why We Drive the Way We Do for free. And you can also get a 14-day free trial of the Audible Listener Gold program. Go ahead and check it out. It's at audiblepodcast.com slash cycling. We thank Audible for their support of the Fredcast, and we thank you for your support of Audible. And now, as I mentioned earlier, it's time for the interview with John Lean, Google engineer who worked on the new Google bicycling directions. I did this interview earlier this evening. If I'm not mistaken, he was in Austin for the South by Southwest Interactive Festival. I think you're going to get a lot out of it. So here is my interview from earlier this evening. Probably one of the most talked about subjects in the world of cycling in the past week, at least here in the United States, has been an announcement that Google made at the National Bike Summit in Washington, D.C. earlier last week, and that was the addition of bicycling directions to Google Maps. And we are really, really pleased to have John Lean, a software engineer for Google, on the phone this evening to talk to us all about that, tell us how it came about, and give us some tips on how to optimize our use of it. So, John, welcome to the Fredcast. Thank you, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Uh, it's good to have you. So let's start at the beginning. You know, I've been a Google Maps user for a long time. I travel a lot, and so I find it very, very helpful for my day-to-day uh, life. But I know a lot of people have asked Google for quite some time, hey, when are you going to add cycling directions to Google Maps? So how long has this been in development? Well, that's a good question. So it's actually, um, as much as people outside of Google have been looking forward to it, people within Google have been excited about this for a long time, too. Um, as you may know, we have a, an avid cycling community within Google. Roughly 10% of Googlers uh, like to work. So this is something that we've been looking forward to for a long time. Um, for the past year, we've been particularly active in developing this. We've been looking for uh, the right data, we've been looking for the right algorithms. And uh, just in the past year, we've gotten together data um, that we've collected from a number of cities, over 150 um, cities. We've uh, partnered with those governments and um, gotten their maps. So uh, and now we can share them with everyone. So uh, uh, so that brings up two questions. You've got data and you've got the algorithm. Let's start with the data. You mentioned Correct. 150 cities. Starting in the United States or the U.S. and Canada? That's right. That's correct. So for the beginning, um, we're looking forward to rolling this out in other places, but we've started with 150 U.S. cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've also collected data um, partnering with the Rails to Trails Conservancy, who have shared over 12,000 miles of uh, bike trails across the country. So what kind of data are you collecting? Uh, for instance, uh, I know here, at least in my metropolitan area, I'm in, I'm in Park City, but in the Salt Lake City metropolitan area, we have a lot of, uh, there's bike paths, there's uh, bike routes on streets and, and, and bike lanes. That's right. How do you gather that data? Uh, we start by um, talking to the cities and counties and um, looking at their biking plans. Mm. So we have on our map, on dedicated bike trails off-road. We also indicate where a surface road has a bike trail, a bike lane rather. And in addition, we look at roads that don't have a lane but are recommended for biking. Either either there's a sharrow painted on them or they're simply indicated by the city as, as being a preferable biking route. Uh, in addition, um, 
Across the country, we have data on terrain hills that we try to avoid when possible. And we also look at major roads, uh, roads that have a lot of lanes, a lot of traffic, and try to steer you away from those when we can. Okay, makes sense. And and what about the algorithm? Because I think that that's really, really the magic sauce, if you will, that, that really puts it all together, right? Indeed. Um, the, as you say, the, the trick is to tile the data together and sort of perform a balancing act, try to figure out how much to weight each factor, whether it's a lane, whether it's uphill. The uh, the algorithm is, is a sort of a, a freshman physics kind of thing where we, we sat down and figured out essentially how much energy your body has to exert to, to bike up a hill. Uh, and similarly, when going down a hill, uh, at what point you'll want to apply the brake. We use that information to figure out um, how fast you'll go on a particular road and how hard you'll work, and use that to try to find the optimal route. Not the necessarily shortest distance, but the, uh, you know, the most pleasant and the, uh, the most uh, time efficient. So then, who would you say that, that this is really aimed at? I mean, is this aimed at your hardcore cyclist who wants to go out and train and get as much, you know, of a, an aerobic workout or a leg workout? Or is this really more for the bike commuter? It's really aimed at a general market. Mm. Um, we think that the, uh, the, the model is probably tuned for a uh, beginning to intermediate cyclist. Now, if you're an avid cyclist, you'll probably find that our time estimates in particular are, are on the conservative side. Uh, which is fine. In fact, we um, invite you to customize your route. Um, you'll find that with uh, biking directions, as with any Google directions, you can click right on the route and uh, drag it to another place. You can you can say, I don't want to go on this street, I'd like to go on this other street, simply by dragging and dropping. So although we begin by optimizing for a, a beginning to intermediate cyclist, we hope that cyclists of all skill levels will be able to use our maps and plan their trips. So let's talk about those time estimates, because I know when I went in and I, I sort of put in a route that, that I use often, sure. the time estimate looked a little low to me. But then again, you know, I, when I'm on that route, I'm not commuting. I really am training. So, so how does that work? Interesting. So what we do is we use that physical model again to figure out how much time it will take to up and down a hill. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes we don't have detailed data. We may, for example, be missing data on how long it would take to cross a street. A street might also be congested, which would slow it down, and that's also data that we might not have available. What we're hoping is that in the future we'll actually get community contributions. Uh, Today, in the lower right corner of any Google map in the U.S., you'll see a link that says report a problem. We're inviting all of our users to click that link and submit any data which we might have inaccurate or missing. If there's a road which is slower than we think it is, we would invite you to uh, submit that. And in general, we can incorporate those fixes within a month. So that really moves into an area where, you know, I talked about this being uh, really well talked about over the last few days. I've got to say that there's been one criticism that I've seen leveled at Google, and that is, hey, you're taking me down the the wrong street, or you're taking me into a neighborhood I wouldn't want to go to, or a neighborhood, or or a street that's got a lot of truck traffic. So the mechanism then is to report the problem. But then again, I mean, it's pretty clear that it says this is in beta, right? That's correct. This is a beta feature, and... Although we've put a lot of work into the algorithms, it's, of course, only as good as the data that we have. Mm. Now, we've started by, as I said, getting data from various cities, but we know there's a lot of local knowledge out there, knowledge that might not be necessarily indicated on a city map. 
for that reason, uh, we're going to be very soon now launching a, uh, a feature called MapMaker. With MapMaker, you, any users, will be able to go in and directly edit Google Maps. You'll be able to say that, you know, this is a road where cyclists should exercise caution, or this is a, a trail that Google Maps doesn't even have now. And this will go through a community moderation feature, sort of like a wiki. And if your, if your edit is voted up, by the moderators, then it will go live on Google Maps. In that way, we hope to sort of unlock a lot of knowledge which which local cyclists already know, but, but which aren't available for the world to see right now. We hope to share that information. Now, will MapMaker work for both uh, uh, cycling maps as well as for regular driving directions as well? That's correct. Driving, walking, and cycling will all be um, available to MapMaker. So it's a way to take... Google Maps and almost open source it in the way that OpenStreetMap and Open Cycle Map have. Exactly. We feel that the uh, the maps that we have right now, we, we believe that they represent the best available data, and um, now we're looking to, to augment that data with, uh, with local knowledge. Now, one of the, th the first things that I noticed when I put in bicycling directions uh, is that, well, the map looks different than what I'm used to on Google Maps. That's correct. We've completely restyled our map. Um, you, if you look at a typical Google map, you probably notice that it's very car-centric. You get these big glowing orange freeways and you know yellow highlighter pen arterial streets, uh, which are precisely the kind of streets you probably want to avoid on a bike. Mm. So when you ask for bicycling directions, um, you'll see that your map view automatically switches to the new bicycling layer. You can also turn this layer on yourself by going to the More menu in the upper right-hand corner of your Google Maps view. Click that and then click Bicycling. When that view changes, you'll see um, what we like to call the green map, which shows green lines for bike trails, bike lanes, and dashed lines for those, those recommended streets that have either a sharrow or some other designation as being a, a good biking street. So what kind of tips can you give to the listeners for optimizing their use of Google Maps bicycling? I would say just start by, by exploring it. Take a look. Um, you'll probably soon figure out whether the uh, time estimates are generally faster or slower than you bike. Um, and please um, submit the, that data that we're missing. If you see uh, an issue with the map, use report a problem. When it launches, use MapMaker. Um, most important thing is, you know, use it, you know, learn it and contribute because we want this to be your map. We want it to reflect the way people really bike in this community. Now, what about mobile devices? Uh, when will people be able to, or are there plans for people to be able to access this data from their iPhone or their Android device? Absolutely. That's in the works. So to begin with, we have what we call the Google Maps API, um, this allows third-party uh, programmers to build on Google Maps. That um, biking information is available in the API right now. Um, the Google Maps mobile application will be having biking in it very soon, and other devices should be able to follow suit using the API. So very soon now, you'll be seeing uh, biking start to show off in mobile maps. And now I have to ask, and I don't even know if you can comment, but you mentioned the Google Maps mobile application. Of course, there's a mobile application on Android devices, and there's a mobile application on, on okay. iPhone. Uh, are there plans to include it in both? Um, on the Android, absolutely. The iPhone application is, is an Apple product, mm. um, but they use that API, which now has Vikings. 
Apple should be able to include it whenever they like. So if you're an iPhone user, you need to put the pressure on Apple, not on Google. Because of, of course Google's going to put it in Android, right? Yep. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Well, tell me, um, anything that we should expect coming next? Is there Are, are there more uh, layers or more additions that you're planning to the bicycling features of Google Maps? Absolutely. So we're always tuning up our cost model. So expect the... Um, the timings and the also the routes themselves to improve over time. Um, that will be both from our own research and from the data that you contribute. Um, and especially uh, look for that launch of MapMaker in a few months. Uh, and at that point, we'll really start to um, get new data in there. You know, one one more thing. You mentioned 150 cities across the U.S. Um, plans to include more cities in the U.S., plans to include Canada, other countries as well? Absolutely. We don't have specific dates available right now, but we're certainly looking at expanding our coverage. Excellent. John, I really want to thank you for coming on the Fredcast and sharing uh, this new feature of Google Maps. I think that it's something that people are going to find very, very interesting. And what I'll do is I'll include a... uh, a link in the show notes to the official Google blog with the information about this, uh, and also uh, a link to where people can begin starting to try it out. John, thanks so much for your time today. Certainly appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with John from Google. I know that I I learned a lot about the way that it works, and and I'm definitely going to be giving that feedback. And as I said, there are just stories all over the internet and blogs and and newspaper stories of people complaining about this feature and saying it's taking me down the wrong lane, it's taking me through a a drug-infested area, or it's taking me down streets that have way too much truck traffic. But you know what? As John said, number one, it is in beta, and number two, they want your feedback. And when they have this new map maker tool that John was talking about, I think that's going to make it even easier for you to submit your routes and your opinions and make this even better. So I'm looking forward to using it. I'm definitely looking forward to hearing your feedback on using the Google Maps bicycling directions. Well, that's going to do it for this episode of the Fredcast. Thanks once again for joining us. And thanks also to our sponsors, Jensen USA at jensenusa.com slash the Fredcast. There's no doubt in my mind that Jensen USA is providing some of the, one of the best selections of products at some of the best prices in the industry. Make sure you go and check them out either by going to thefredcast.com and clicking on the Jensen USA link or just by going to jensenusa.com slash thefredcast. Also want to thank our sponsor, Audible. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash cycling and sign up for your free Audible Listener Gold Program 14-day trial and check out that book, Traffic, Why We Drive the Way We Do and What It Says About Us by Tom Vanderbilt. I know you won't be disappointed in either the book or in Audible. Hey, plus, don't forget the Epic Planet Fredcast Epic Tucson Bundle. Go ahead and check that out at epicplanet.tv slash fredcast underscore bundle, or it's a lot easier. Just go to the show notes and click on the link. And thank you also for your donations and your subscriptions. And thank you for supporting the sponsors that support the Fredcast. Hey, don't forget, you can stay in contact with the Fredcast all the time. Follow along on Twitter. That's twitter.com slash Fredcast. Of course, you can send an email anytime 
thefredcast at gmail.com, or for listener comments, call area code 661-513-FRED. That's area code 661-513-3733. Now, before we get out of here tonight, as always, it's time for our pod safe cycling music, and that comes to us from well, they've got several names. They used to be called the Podsafe Music Network. Then they were called music.mevio.com, and now it sounds like they just want to go by Music Alley. Tonight's song is from a band called Megaphone, and it's called My Favorite New Disaster. There are links in the show notes to Megaphone's website, to their page on Music Alley, and also where you can find them and their song on iTunes. I'll be back in just a couple of days with another episode of the Fredcast Cycling Podcast. In the meantime, thanks for listening, thanks for staying subscribed, and thanks for telling all of your friends about the Fredcast and for your reviews on iTunes. Between this show and the next, enjoy the music, but most of all, enjoy the ride. Heard they say that I'm pumped out Cause I don't come around